Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. It's Monday, the last day of September, and I hope you all had a fantastic weekend. And of of course, as always, thanks so much for tuning in today. I got a good program lined up here. In about uh, 10 minutes, I'll be speaking with Kaylin Chi. She is a lawyer that is leading the first big legal challenge to BC speculation tax. She's representing six homeowners that have signed on, arguing the law is unconstitutional and the provincial government doesn't have the power to collect revenues from the levy. One of the lead plaintiffs spends a lot of time in Texas where he gets medical care covered by his U.S military service and his wife who is profoundly Canadian um, but yet because they both spend a considerable amount of time south of the border they are classified as speculators so I'll be speaking more with Kaylin Chi on her case in a little bit in the back half of today's program I'll be speaking with the director of the provincial language services to talk about the language needs of interpreters here in BC the top three languages in the province when it comes to language needs in the healthcare system are Mandarin, Cantonese and Punjabi but none of those top the list here in the interior so we'll find out what that number one language is here and around the 35 minute mark and then to end off today's show i'll be joined by john Keane to break down what was a successful weekend for the kamloops blazers they scored a pair of wins over the vancouver giants and Kelowna rockets so we'll be talking more about that a little bit later but to kick things off today i'm joined by my usual monday guest document laws kyla lee kyla as always thank you so much for being here Thank you for having me back yet again. <laughs> so uh, let's just start by talking uh, about the Supreme Court of Canada. It's ordering a case concerning protection of journalistic sources back to a lower court, saying that it can't decide on the issue because arguments have changed. But in a majority decision, the court did reaffirm that under new laws, journalists should be forced to reveal their sources only as a last resort. Now, as someone who has worked in the news industry for about a decade, this was a bit of a comforting decision. I guess, uh, what, what is your opinion on this as it stands now? Because it seems like, uh, you know, especially when it comes to investigative journalism, that uh, revealing your sources could have some pretty severe consequences. Oh, absolutely. Revealing your sources could have severe consequences, not only to the the protection of, of journalists, but also to sort of a, an essential component of living in free and democratic society, which is having a press that's able to freely report and having people who can go to journalists and be comfortable that they're going to be productive. And there was a lot of concern uh, surrounding the potential outcome of this case because of the earlier decision um, uh, late last year in the Vice News case, where uh, Vice News was forced to give up information that they had regarding an, uh, a relationship with a source, a lot of people were concerned that this was something that was going to uh, go negatively for the protection of journalists. And in fact, the Supreme Court of Canada applied uh, a pretty stringent test uh, to the requirement, uh, if, if it occurs, um, that a journalist has to reveal its source. So that was a positive thing. Um, now, the SEC, of course, didn't actually decide on the issue, but having at least stated that sources should only be revealed as a last resort, um, should that at least you know, set the table for the lower court to come to a similar conclusion, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, anytime uh, the Supreme Court of Canada makes a very stringent legal test that says, you know, this is something that's, that's to be done as a last resort, it is going to set the standard for lower courts. So when this does go back uh, before a lower court level to be determined at the trial level on the basis of the new facts that have come out since the case was originally heard, um, that interpretation that the Supreme Court of Canada gave to the provisions of the Canada Evidence Act are going to guide how the judge makes the decision 
ultimately in the case. Um, and there's really three things that the judge is going to have to consider. The first is whether or not the person's a journalist. The second is whether or not the confidential source is in fact a source. And finally, uh, the and, and I think the most important question, uh, whether there is no other alternative means to get the information that the applicant is seeking. And, and that's really where these cases are going to turn. It's pretty easy to identify when someone's a journalist and when someone's a source. But where there's no other alternative means is going to be a difficult burden for any applicant to establish. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll speak a little bit here to the to the specific case where I've seen a lot of this sort of relating back to was um, uh, in Quebec where investigative journalist uh, Marie-Maude Denis helped uncover corruption in public construction projects there in the province and was able to find the mafia had become heavily involved and influential in the industry. And now some of those mafia members, I guess, are set to go to court and they believe that she should have to unveil her sources. Now, a, a Quebec judge, like I mentioned earlously, agreed, um, but that case, of course, is being appealed. I mean, how terrifying is it that if these sources were to be revealed, what could happen? I mean, I know you already talked on this, but just looking back at this specific case, when we're talking about the Quebec mafia, I mean, uh, I think it's pretty clear to see what could potentially happen if these sources were unveiled. Oh, of course. These, these cases involving threats to the to the life and liberty of people who are are providing source information are the types of cases that that require the stringent and principled application of these legal tests. Because you know, of course, anytime we hear the word mafia, we think of you know these dark individuals who are going to commit misdeeds. Um, and people who provide information to journalists as sources don't want to have to lose their lives to let the public know what is going on. And there is a very real concern that if their identities are revealed, harm may befall them. So the court has to be very careful um, in applying the legal test, particularly in this case. Uh, and, and I'll get the, I'll end the, the topic here on this, but just uh, as a lawyer yourself, as a defense lawyer, uh, I mean, how, how important do you think the role is of uh, people like investigative journalism to, to uh, the, the, the uh, process of law. I mean, they obviously have a pretty influential um, part of, of what can potentially happen when we're talking about legal cases. They do, and I think a lot of people don't recognize the relationship that uh, that lawyers and journalists actually have in the sense that there's often information that is not known to the public or available to the public um, that journalists can, can release to the public through using confidential sources. Um, and that can often spur legal challenges or legal cases. We see legal action taken in this Quebec corruption case as a result of uh, the investigative journalism, even here in British Columbia, the great investigative journalism that's been done by uh, Sam Cooper in relation to the money laundering. Um, and uh, and sentinel trade has been something that's actually spurred legal action. It, it's uh, caused a lot of things uh, to happen in our courts. It's caused legislative change. And if we didn't have journalists doing the work that they do um, and uncovering this information and working with sources, uh, there's no telling how much, uh, how much corruption and how many bad things just generally would happen in our society. Because lots of times lawyers can't on their own protect people just by bringing legal action. There needs to be an investigation and a basis to start that legal action in the first place. Mm -hmm. Definitely interesting. Uh, I'm here with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Um, 
So I guess to shift gears a little bit here, I also did want to ask about the case of uh, Briar Schmigelski and, and Cam McLeod. Um, RCMP did hold a, a press conference on Friday to unveil some new details. Uh, police said in a series of videos recorded days before they killed themselves in northern Manitoba that the pair were responsible for three killings in northern BC, but did provide no motive. Now, first, I just wanted to ask you kind of about the timing of this presser. Um, now, now, there was nothing that was said that I found overly surprising, but what I did find frustrating, particularly as a broadcaster, was this press conference was held at something like 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon. It sort of felt like police were trying to bury the story, even though it didn't really feel like there was any information that needed to be buried. I guess, just how did you feel about the timing of this? Um, I mean, it was frustrating for me. Were, were you at all frustrated by the timing of it? Oh, absolutely. The timing of this uh, of this press conference, in my view, was incredibly deliberate. It coincided exactly with when the climate strike was taking place uh, in British Columbia. It coincided with climate strikes all across uh, the country. It was on a Friday afternoon at a, uh, a time when uh, a lot of you know the major media outlets are already rushing to put together their last stories for the Friday news. So getting the you know the video clips uh, onto the six o'clock news becomes that much more difficult based on the timing of this and the RCMP know what they're doing when they hold press conferences they know the schedules of journalists mm -hmm. and, and and media for putting their stories out there they know about other major events that are going to require attention from media this was deliberate and this was I think to detract attention away from this which is consistent with what the RCMP has been saying as one of their reasons for withholding as much information as they have which is that they don't want to make these people famous for committing these horrific murders yeah, um, I guess that sort of makes sense. But I mean, as some as as a you know members of the public, we have a lot of interest in this story. So really frustrating to see just when they decided to release the information. Now, in terms of what was actually released, I mean, were you surprised by anything? There was there was new stuff in there, but nothing that came out that I I you know was out of left field for me. Did you see anything new that was surprising to you? No, really, there were no bombshells. I mean, the, the information they released was that they had in the other videos uh, confessions to the uh, the murders um, that they hadn't yet de declared officially that they'd concluded that uh, uh, Schmigelski and McLeod had committed. Um, that's not surprising. I think everybody assumed all along that the other videos that hadn't been released, you know, were confessions to the acts that they'd committed. They detailed their plan, but again, you know, people had already sort of pieced together what the plan likely was going to be, which was to engage in a murder spree. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, nothing about this was incredibly surprising, and it seems almost as though the RCMP felt that they had to release this information because of the amount of public attention to the story and because of the fact that so many people wanted answers for the murders of uh, of, of China Dees and her boyfriend. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we did not get a motive. I think uh, we'll probably never get one. Do you think we might ever learn of the motive behind these two men? I don't think that we'll ever learn of the motive. The, the videos, as the RCMP said, reveal nothing about uh, about what the motive was. And, you know, unfortunately, there are circumstances, whether this was one or not, we'll never know. But there are circumstances where people just, you know, decide to commit murders mm -hmm. without any motive. And there are people out there who have something wrong um, that compels them to do that. And, you know, I think that's probably the best that we'll ever be able to say um, was likely the case here. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that one. Well, Kyla, as always, Thanks so much for joining me, but unfortunately we are out of time. So, uh, as again, thanks so much for being here on Monday, and I look forward to doing it again next week. Thank you. I look forward to it, too. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking with a lawyer representing those who are challenging the B.C. speculation tax, so stick around for that.
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on this lovely Monday in Kamloops. Now, the province is getting set for its first major challenge to the speculation tax. The lawsuit was filed last week on behalf of six homeowners in the Victoria area. It argues that the spec tax unfairly targets residents and out-of-country Canadians who split their time between two homes. Here to talk about this case is lawyer Kaylin Chi of Lawrence Wong and Associates, who is leading the case. Kaylin, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Kaylin, I mean, maybe just tell me a little bit about the case as a whole. Can you just sort of give me a rundown of what it is that's happening? So you have uh, six plaintiffs uh, on, the, on the list of uh, right now that are arguing against the spec tax. I guess, what is the sort of the main theme behind their arguments right now? Yeah, for sure. So last week we filed a petition at the Supreme Court of B.C. to challenge the constitutionality of the speculation tax on behalf of six B.C. homeowners. Um, they're across British Columbia, including the Victoria region, as well as the lower mainland. And the petition is about the speculation tax being simply a tax grab rather than a tax solution for speculators and people who leave their homes vacant. Because what we see is that a lot of these people who are getting taxed are neither speculators nor you know people who are leaving their homes vacant. And so the lawsuit wants to demonstrate that the people targeted um, by the tax have had their uh, Section 7 Charter Protected Liberty, Security, and Privacy rights breached. And in addition to that, um, the impact of the tax has essentially forced them to move out of their homes or to rent out uh, their homes to a stranger or to sell it. And since the filing of the tax, we've had an outpouring of support from different um, community groups who have reached out uh, wanting to join the lawsuit or um, are supporting it from mm-hmm. a financial perspective. Yeah, uh, the the two lead plaintiffs, from what I saw, spent uh, part of the year in Texas where uh, 93-year-old Robert Simpson gets medical care covered by his U.S. military service, and then part of the year they spend in B.C., the family home where his wife Denise actually grew up. Um, so I guess, uh, how frustrating is it from, from like a perspective of this couple who's probably been living in this home for quite an extensive amount of time but does split their time between the U.S. and Canada? Um, I mean, they've, this is obviously nothing new. So, I mean, do you think it's just that it's sort of unfair Fairly, this tax is being put on people who not only can't afford it in this case, so they're an older couple on a fixed income with a $1.2 million home, I believe it is, but the fact that, you know, this isn't anything new. This is a practice they have been doing for a long time. Is this just sort of a, a, um, a pattern that you're seeing when it comes to some of these cases and the people that are signing on to, to your lawsuit? Well, I think the issue with the tax and in, in our, our um, court documents, we argue that it's arbitrary and it's completely irrational and disconnected to its stated objectives. In this case of our um, plaintiffs, the Simpsons, they, they've they had the home since um, 1996 and they inherited it from uh, Denise Simpson's mother. So they can't be called a speculator when they never purchased the home in the first place. And it is their primary and only residence in Canada. 
and the imposition of the tax is overly onerous. It's an, it imposes a tax on your after income, uh, after tax income, on top of you already paying a property and an income tax. It's simply unaffordable for for seniors like the Simpsons who are living off of pensions, and you know just because that uh, her spouse is American and has connections um, to the states uh, as well as you know certain military benefits that require them to to be in the states for certain times of the year it doesn't make them any less Canadian than any you or I mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's a very discriminatory tax and it affects people who are living in their houses and it's simply quite just unfair. It's a tax grab from the government um, and it's it, the legislation itself is a, it's a failure, not a success story. The issue with it is, is that the starting point of the law is very problematic. It taxes all British Columbians who own re- residences in the province and so it's structured that it's uh, it, by default it applies to all residential property owners and only with the exemptions um, that you have to fit into. If you fit into these, you know, very, very specific exemptions, then you're able to be exempt from paying the tax. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is even if the tax exempts you today, it might not exempt you tomorrow because the government can at any time remove these exemptions and effectively make your property taxable. Uh, now, you had mentioned you had been getting quite a bit of interest when this uh, spec tax was first introduced. I guess right now you have, from what I understand, six plaintiffs involved in this. Do you expect to get quite a few more calls and uh, get a few more people on board with this, uh, you know, this, uh, um, uh, this case against the spec tax? Oh, the the um, response has been overwhelming, I must say, and I've we've probably had about. I mean, I haven't done a specific headcount, but it's probably close to thirty new people who have come forward who are deeply affected by this tax or in similar situations. You know, they're retired, they can't afford it, they've been living in it for all their life, and. They've been forced to sell it or, you know, there's there's an urgency for them to figure out how to deal with it for the 2019 calendar year mm-hmm. because it's simply unaffordable. Um, and so, yeah, I would say the response has been quite positive. Um, but the more people who come forward and um, share their stories and the the more helpful it is yeah. in terms from a legal perspective to effectively challenge this divisive and discriminatory legislation yeah. and um, and yeah the cases that we've seen so far it it really shows that this tax does not help with the objective of fighting high property yeah. prices in the province and it really just targets ownership for ownership's sake and it doesn't look behind to the purpose of what people are using the home for whether it's for um as a family residence or whether it's for speculation purposes and the other legal argument is that you know it's uh it's a form of indirect taxation that falls outside the powers of the provincial government 
and it's 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 essentially a double taxation on people's income and i, I don't think a, a, there's a lot of misinformation about this legislation Kayla, unfortunately we're out of time so i do have to cut you off i'm really sorry about that yeah, for sure. um, but thank you so much for joining me and uh, i really appreciate you getting the message out about this case it's definitely something we're going to be following so thanks so much for being here yeah, my pleasure. Awesome. Take care. That was lawyer Kaylin Chi of Lawrence Wong and Associates, who's leading the uh, challenge against the province's speculation tax. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking interpretation within the healthcare system, so stick around for that. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back here to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thank you so much for tuning in on this Monday. The Provincial Health Services Authority is out with its list of languages that are most frequently requested in B.C. when it comes to health services. Here to talk about this is the Director of the Provincial Language Service, Kieran Malley. Kieran, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. So the big three languages that were in need of interpretation were, were Mandarin, Cantonese, and Punjabi. I guess, was there anything there that surprised you when you were collecting this data? Uh, no, not really. I think that's consistently the top three languages in BC. Um, so yeah, no real surprises uh, around that at all. How, how long have you guys been collecting uh, this data to, to sort of see that pattern? Um, yeah, I would say so pro probably since for sure 2020, if not before, or sorry, uh, 2010, if not mm -hmm. before that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, a long time. So we do we do collect that data and okay. we report on it pretty much every year. Yeah, and, and this sort of has been the, the trend for the last little while at least was, was those three? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I assume basically that's just a straight up near reflection or perfect reflection of the population, I guess, in the area when we're looking specifically, I guess, at the, the lower mainland where the majority of the population would be. Uh, these, these requests for interpretation services would pretty much just be a, a reflection of, of people that are kind of migrating to the area? It is, yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's it's too around the longevity of uh, some of these um, uh, immigrant groups that have come here, right? So some of them have been, uh, if you're looking back in terms of the trajectory, some of them have been around for a little bit longer. Um, and it certainly is a reflection of who's coming. But I do think, too, that... Um, if you look past those top three, there's a real array of languages that we serve. Um, and I know like up in your area, Arabic seems to be one of the top ones as well. So, uh, And that's definitely reflective of who, again, like in terms of the refugees that might be coming into the country um, and, and settling in, in BC. So, yeah. So you, you do kind of look at the, the top languages, I guess, for every area of the province, and, and it does, from what you say, differ quite a bit, I guess, from, from different uh, geographical areas, like the lower mainland is sort of where these big three are, um, and then it, it kind of shifts as you move north. Is that kind of uh, yeah. you know, how things work? Yes, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So it, it depends, and I would say, um, you know, uh, for your for your guys' area, I would say Arabic is, is definitely the, the number one language and uh, then it moves on to, I just have it in front of me here, um, then it seems to be Cantonese is the second one. So um, Cantonese is still strong out in that area, but Arabic seems to be the, the top language and it's just a huge array of languages from um, uh, Khmer, which is from Cambodia to Italian. Uh, so it's just little pockets um, of language needs out there. I mean, Punjabi is just not very strong of a need. It's still it's still there, but it's not as strong of a need as as it is in the Lower Mainland. 
Why is this data so important to collect? I think it, it kind of feels like it's probably a pretty straightforward into the reasons why, but maybe just reiterate sort of why it's so necessary to know, you know, where these languages are being spoken and where these services are more frequently needed. Well, for us, it certainly comes around to our planning. So if we don't know the language needs, we don't know which kind of interpreters that we would need to get. So really, we need to focus on, um, you know, what are the requests coming in? So what are the languages being asked for, which tells you, gives you a bit of um, insight into your patient demographic in terms of the linguistic demographics of the people out there. And then it allows us uh, to, to better plan um, in terms of the language interpreters that we need um, because if we don't have uh, Tagalog as example uh, interpreters and we're getting requests for them then we kind of need to figure out how we go about getting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm joined on the phone by the Director of Provincial Language Services, Kieran Malley. Um, I mean, how, how difficult is it uh, in some of these cases to find interpreters for some of these languages? I mean, um, you know, is it more difficult in certain areas when we're looking at some of those more uh, unique languages, I guess, that maybe not, aren't as available in other places? Like, how, how for example, uh, here in Kamloops, you mentioned Arabic would be one of our top uh, needs for, for interpreting interpretation services. I mean, how, how difficult is it to find someone to be able to... to to play the role of interpreter, is it difficult or, or, you know, the fact that this data is available, does it allow you to to plan ahead and and be able to ensure that these services are available when needed? So I'd say it's a a both and. So yes, it can be difficult, um, but it does allow us to do some planning. So so we're thankful for for this data because it certainly lets us figure out what we need to do to to get, uh, to, to meet the patient's needs. Uh, which is what we really want to do in the end, is to ensure that people out there actually understand what's being told to them in a healthcare encounter, um, because that speaks to patient safety. And, and I say it's difficult sometimes because I think the misnomer out there is that anybody who's bilingual can be an interpreter without really understanding that there is a lot more to it um, than that. There's uh, skills and and, uh, and um, language proficiency that's required in both languages. And when I'm talking about language proficiency, I'm mean like we're talking about medical language proficiency in both languages. So it's a little more than just getting anybody who is bilingual or multilingual off the street and saying, hey, can you, uh, can you interpret for me? So I think that's a bit of a misnomer out there. So we really are looking for people who have um, some skills and training in interpreting as well as the language proficiency that is so important. Hmm. That's that's super interesting. I mean, is it difficult? I mean, you you said it's um, you know obviously it's not just any Joe Blow off the street can just come on and be an interpreter if they even if they are um, you know do know multiple languages. Um, I guess is it really difficult for you guys to find people, or do you get a lot of uh, applicants and then say uh, you know good that you can speak two languages, but you need to learn a little bit more when it comes to these medical terms and things like that, or, or how does that process work? Do you guys you know encourage people to to apply and then you know if they don't quite know everything they need to. To, to go out and learn it and come back? Yeah, definitely. So that is what we do. It's a, it's a bit of coaching, I guess, on our end, too. Um, so, yes, I mean, often, sometimes we get people who have uh, master's degrees in interpreting and translation. It does exist. Um, so we get that, and, and of course, th- those people are more than um, trained and, and qualified to do this. And then sometimes we'll get people who, who just... Um, are thinking, as, as a lot of people do that, I'm bilingual, therefore I can do this. And what we will do is we will encourage them to go out and get some training, and then when they do, to come back to us, and, and then we'll look at it again. Um, does this data at all uh, change the way maybe 
uh, medical professionals also look at where they might want to uh, be stationed when they are, you know, sitting, settling down for a career? Do you have any idea if that has any impact as well? If, if you're a doctor that can speak Cantonese, are you going to be probably more likely to look at somewhere where that skill could be utilized? I, I actually don't know. Mm. I couldn't speak for the doctors, sorry. That's fair. No, I just thought it might yeah. uh, might be some useful data for, for those medical professionals as well. I mean, just, you know, if they're going to have those skills of multiple languages, you might as well look at somewhere where you can use them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Perfect. Well, I mean, I guess, do you have any calls or any needs for, for more interpreters that you want to make while I have you on the line here? Is there uh, any particular languages that you're kind of short on or, or, you know, any sort of particular PSA that you can give me while you're here? Um, I don't know if there's anything that we're short on, but we certainly do encourage people to apply if they uh, if they have the training um, and the skills that we're looking for um, and the language uh, proficiency that's that's needed. We certainly do continuous intake in terms of um, accepting applications, and then we kind of uh, screen and go through them as we as we move through the year. Just out of curiosity, too, while I have you on the line, um, when it comes to uh, you know, Aboriginal services, is there uh, a lot of data collected there as well? Do you guys notice if there's a, a big need for, for any particular language when it comes to First Nations um, in, here in BC? Currently, we're not uh, serving First Nations languages. Um, so I know in uh, Williams Lake, they have um, Indigenous interpreters out there for Indigenous languages. Um, and I, I believe that's run by Interior Health, that program. Okay. So it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not done through Provincial Language Service. All right. Well, maybe I'll follow up with them and see if I can uh, collect some data on that. Well, Karen, yeah, yeah. anything else that you want to add before I let you go? No, I think, um, uh, you know, happy translation day to all the interpreters and translations, translators out there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. That was Provincial Health Services Authority's Director of Provincial Language Service, Kieran Malley. Coming up after the break, your Kamloops Blazers scored two wins in as many nights over the weekend. I'll be joined by announcer John Keane to take a look back at wins over the Rockets and Giants. So stick around. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and happy Monday here on Radio NL. Thanks for tuning in. The Kamloops Blazers had a much better weekend compared to the week before. They scored home wins over division rivals the Kelowna Rockets and the Vancouver Giants. I'm joined now by Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane. John, how you doing, buddy? Hey, well, much better today, right? You know, after the uh, the opening weekend uh, there where it was three games in three nights and without a result, uh, as you pointed out there, yeah, it's a much better uh, day to come off a weekend like that. Yeah, so uh, let's start by taking a quick look back to, to Friday's game. Uh, overtime win over Kelowna, 3-2 final score. I thought it was, uh, personally, when I was there, I found it to be a bit of a boring game just compared to the, out of the two, it was the more boring, in my opinion. Uh, but maybe that was kind of what the Blazers needed to do was sort of calm things down, play a little bit more structured, I guess. How did you feel about the game plan against uh, Kelowna on Friday night? Well, the thing with those games against Kelowna is uh, it's Kelowna and Kamloops, so it's, it's never boring. It's, it's kind of nail-biting, <laughs> even though I know, I know what you mean, the flow of the game maybe wasn't there. But that's what Kelowna's trying to do. Uh, they're not going to be a team that can trade chances, uh, at least not yet. Uh, I would expect them to add 
you know, some forwards uh, down here to closer to the trade deadline. But they want to defend and try to win those low-scoring games. Hence, they only had, what, 20 shots on goal, and I think they had five power plays that night. So, uh, yeah, that that's kind of going to be the game flow sometimes, I think, when you play Kelowna and Adam Foote, who is a defensive-minded coach, uh, structure, systems coach, right? So I, I think that's what you saw in that game. Um, you know, gladly, uh, and I guess thankfully, uh, was Ryan Hughes' debut and, uh, and his debut kind of trumped uh, all of that uh, with, a, with a sensational game and then the overtime winner. Yeah, heck of a debut there for Ryan Hughes. Like you mentioned, two goals, one assist, including the overtime winner. I mean, uh, what is this kid going to bring to this team? I mean, I'm sure you had broken it all down prior to his debut with the trade being made last week. But, I mean, now that you've had a chance to see him on the ice, I mean, was it everything that you expected and, and maybe even more than? Yeah, I think Friday night was. It was more than I expected. He played really well off of uh, Zane Franklin. They combined for, for a goal. And then, you know, of course, uh, he was in overtime, got that power play and, and just kind of snuck a shot through. And yeah, definitely, I, I think uh, that was more than I bargained for. But, but for some reason, the WHL and junior hockey in general, I don't know what it is, but whenever a player makes a debut, let's say he's a, um, you know, a star player coming over after a trade, or they, they always seem to have big nights in the, in the league. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe they're, they're ramped up. Uh, there's a lot of attention and focus, and their teammates also want them to have a good game. Um, you know, and then, then Saturday, I don't think it was, uh, you know, his best game. He, he kind of fought the puck a little bit, and that line didn't get a lot done, even strength. And, um, you know, luckily there was uh, a lot other a big supporting cast around him. So, yeah, I, I think you're going to see a guy that uh, has the ability to score and, and is going to make some uh, some dynamic plays and some fancy plays. But there'll be nights, too, where, where he struggles because, you know, trying to maybe make those plays and, um, you know, and they're taken away. Uh, it, it, whenever you, you, whenever you turn the puck over or um, fail to make a play, that's what everybody sees, right? They don't see, you know, the, the, the kind of the behind the scenes stuff. So uh, you, there's going to be nights like we saw where it's going to be wow, fantastic, what a night. There's going to be nights like Saturday too where it's kind of held in check. So, given what you said off the top there, do you think I guess that the Blazers should be finding a player to debut every single game, just like you know, give them a bit of an edge or what? <laughs> Yeah, just randomly picking up guys. Yeah, just for the night. Yeah, I, it's strange how the league works. I remember I was in Swift Current uh, years ago, what, 10, 12 years ago, and uh, the Blaze, or the Broncos picked up a player by the name of uh, Ned Lukasevic from the Spokane Chiefs, uh, and he debuted with a five-goal game. Um, you know, and, and there's no way that he ever did anything close to that yeah. after that, right? It's just the way it seems to work sometimes. Yeah, maybe uh, putting your putting a little bit more pressure on yourself moving forward. If you have a night like that, everyone's going to expect it every time you touch the ice. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a great weekend, too, for uh, goaltender Dylan Guerin. I mean, I thought uh, he stopped, what, 51 of 55 over the course of the two games. Um, you know, quite quite busier on Saturday against Vancouver when he faced 35 shots. Um, I mean, does between the pipes, I mean, have a real good chance of being a, a strength for this team over the course of the year? Uh, he had a rough couple of games kind of to start giving up eight in his first two starts, uh, but it looks like he was a little bit calmer here this weekend. Well, I think his play also reflected the, the the lack of the quality opportunities as well that he would have faced opening weekend. He, he was actually really good opening weekend, but just faced too many quality chances, too many turnovers in front of him, and odd man rushes, and that's you know that's going to expose any goaltender. Uh, but but you're right, yeah, he he did bounce back, especially against Vancouver, where you know he makes 33 saves, and uh, he he's never beaten Vancouver in his life, and and uh, last season he had an ample opportunity to do that, couldn't get it done, so. You know, this year, you know, he, he took it on as a bit of a challenge. I think he was very motivated to play the Giants. Uh, he was locked in, played very, very well. 
um, you know, and and you could kind of see it before the game that he was uh, he was determined, and uh, yeah, so so he gets the job done there. He gets the job done against Kelowna. Um, you know, two teams that have pretty good power plays. You don't want to get put them on the power play very much. Uh, there was a lot of you know opportunities on the man advantage, but uh, yeah, he's 17 and he's a good goalie, and uh, and he's going to be a good goalie for this team. And you know, it was nice to see him pick up the two wins. Uh, joined by Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane. So looking uh, specifically at Saturday, I mean, the, the Vancouver Giants are pegged as one of the favorites to win the W this year. Uh, obviously, they were the conference champion last year and, and almost got to the Memorial Cup, but just fell a little bit short. Uh, Bowen Byram and company got off to a quick start there, scoring just five minutes in on a power play. And then uh, Logan Stankoven just answered right back about a minute later. And then Blazers were kind of uh, felt a little more in control after that. Um, I guess one of the concerns, though, like you had mentioned, 10 penalties over over the course of these two games. I mean, is there any concern when it comes to discipline here as the season moves along? I mean, five penalties a game, I think, is far too many to be taking, in my opinion. Well, you know, I think there was some concern uh, after the very first game against the Spokane Chiefs, the home opener. There was the major penalty and some other uh, undisciplined plays. But honestly, I haven't seen a lot of undisciplined plays. Uh, sometimes in these games, uh, it's it's odd how it goes with the officiating here. It, it doesn't matter how uh, your 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 chances are going. If you're getting power play opportunities, eventually they're all going to even out in the end, especially with division rivals. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we saw. Um, you know, the Blazers uh, had some opportunities uh, to get on the power play. Uh, and then it's almost like, okay, now what can we find here to try to even up the odds here a little bit uh, with these two teams? And that, that's kind of what I saw. I didn't see really any undisciplined play uh, this weekend. I thought everybody played uh, pretty well on that regard. Uh, and in the WHL, yeah, you're going to see nights where you know, you're know you surrendering four, five, six power plays a night. I'd be more concerned if it was eight, nine, or, and, and there was like five on threes and things like that. So yeah, you know, I think they're not too concerned about the discipline. I think, yes, there was maybe after the home opener, that was just a one-game sample, but I think this team has clamped it down. And you know, the penalty kill's really strong. It's, it's structured, uh, and uh, it's done a good job so far this season. Yeah, I think uh, when you're talking about even things up, I believe each team had five penalties on both nights, so obviously uh, pretty go. pretty consistent. And actually, yes, and both nights, uh, one team uh, went out to a 3-0 or 4-0 penalty advantage or power play advantage right away, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, well, I'll wait till the end of the night when this shows five five. <laughs> sure enough, both nights that's that's what happened. So. Um, uh, looking uh, at that game against Vancouver, I mean, obviously, uh, like I had mentioned before, one of the favorites to, to come out of the WHL this year. I guess just uh, what does that mean for the team to get a win over a team like that? Obviously, when you start 0-3, uh, you know, your confidence might be a little bit shaky, but they come back with two wins and, and two wins over some pretty good teams. And, and like I said, one of the favorites here. Um, they won 6-2. to I don't know if the score really reflected exactly how the game went. It was a little bit closer than that. Um, but the, the two late goals sort of made the score look a little bit more lopsided. But just what does that do? you think for a team like this uh, you know in terms of building that confidence and being able to kind of take this this season to the next level here uh, you know now two and three on the season and, and looking to kind of continue that yeah, you know, that, that win over Vancouver was big. Last season, this team uh, had opportunities to beat the Giants. They had uh, third-period leads. Uh, they had, you know, games in overtime. They had uh, tie games late in the third period. And through the eight-game season series, they didn't collect a victory. Uh, the best they could do was uh, two losses in overtime and one shootout loss and then five regulation losses. And if you want to go back the year prior, they had lost the last two games against the Giants. So Vancouver was riding a 10-game winning streak against the Blazers going into that game and yeah to get that victory against the team that is so-called favorite i think people are picking the giants to be 
you know, on top of this division again. And I think the Blazers making a statement to say, hey, uh, we want to be included in that mix. Granted, you're right. Vancouver has good pedigree going all the way to the WHL championship and losing by a goal. I mean, game seven overtime uh, is how it was decided. So, you know, winning against the Giants, a team that is not shying away from those championship expectations Mm -hmm. at all, uh, they feel that they are going to be right there in the end. And and I think for the Blazers to take round one, uh, and hand the Giants back-to-back losses, actually, because they lost Friday at home, and that was, uh, that was a big step for this hockey team. Good stuff, John. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Okay, Jeff, yeah, tee up Wednesday's game. Uh, Wednesday, they got the Seattle Thunderbirds in town here for a 7 o'clock face-off, and, of course, the Blazers will be looking for revenge from opening weekend when their goalie made uh, 50 saves in that Saturday night. So. Yeah, you can listen to John here on Radio NL on Wednesday evening. Well, thanks so much, John, and uh, thanks to all my guests for joining me, and uh, thank you to all for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.